Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we return to the subject of nuclear power. While it is hailed by some as the solution for energy transition, its global contribution to power supply continues to decline. Why is that? What's its role in the European energy crisis? And how at risk are we with lifetime extensions and an aging fleet? And what is the role of nuclear power within a broader geopolitical framework? Returning to the show is Michael Schneider. Michael is the lead coordinator and publisher of the World Nuclear Industry Status Report and has had a long career as a consultant and independent analyst on nuclear power and nuclear policy. As always, you can support the show by leaving us a review on the platform you're listening on, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Michael, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me again, Paul. So the last time we had you on, it we actually, I think, recorded it in December, but it went out in January, episode 79, and we did a, a sort of full overview of the, the state of the nuclear industry. And what I wanted to do today was really update that status based on the fact that uh, a lot has happened this year with energy crisis in Europe, obviously the the start of the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and uh, a drumbeat of demand for nuclear as a solution to energy transition. The most poignant moment or most memorable moment from that episode was you saying, on this basis, the species is dying out. Can you give us a recap on kind of why we continue to see a stall and even a reduction in the contribution of nuclear power to to the world? And I think, as you put in your latest report, it's fallen for the first time below 10% since really inception. I think we taped the last episode um, on 15th of December 2021. So it was actually before we had the year-end results coming in. So there's quite a bit of of not really differences from the earlier analysis, but rather reinforcement of uh, earlier perceptions. So indeed that for the first time in 40 years, the share of nuclear power in uh, gross commercial electricity generation in the world dropped again below 10%. And that happens to take place exactly the same year when solar and wind together alone generated more than 10%. In other words, past nuclear power as uh, electricity, commercial electricity uh, generators. And I'm always stressing we're talking commercial, right? Because off-grid production is increasing phenomenally uh, decentralized residential solar is getting a huge boost especially by the way in countries like the us so we have seen basically year-end results that show that the role of nuclear power continues to decline we have seen in total six new nuclear power plants starting up in the world of which half in, in, in China, very typical for what is going on. And I'm sure we can, we're gonna come back to that. 
And those six startups are to be compared with 16 that were expected at the beginning of the year, which is interesting because it, it also indicates that the building industry does not control timelines at all. Like even at the beginning of the year, they aren't able to to indicate whether they finish their construction of a nuclear power plant within the year. So six out of 16 planned. And at the same time, during the year, eight reactors were closed for good, plus two units that had not generated any power since 2018, but the decision was only taken in 2021 to not restart them. So that makes 10 units less versus uh, six that started up. It's, it's no miracle here that the installed capacity obviously dropped while we have seen the main competitors, which are now, it's not gas anymore, it's renewables, have taken off in an, in an unprecedented manner. And I guess crucial to this is stepping outside of the sort of the traditional pros and cons when we discuss you know, nuclear power around the dinner table. At the heart of this lies fundamentally purely just economics. Can you just talk to us why is that? Just a recap of why nuclear power has never lived up to its expectations. And even today in a world of energy crisis and energy transition, you're still seeing that its share dwindle and also even the expected new starts not happening? Well, what we've seen, if you take, uh, you know, sources, references, like as a, with the, um, the Lazar Bank, one of the oldest uh, financial institutions in the world, as, as reference, they publish uh, every year an assessment of levelized cost of energy, which means you look at the expected costs over the entire lifetime of the facility, and they compare various technologies. And basically, while solar PV utility scale has dropped in costs about 90% since 2009, wind dropped about 70% since 2009. Over the same period, nuclear increased costs by 36%. The orders of magnitude are now for solar and wind around $40 per megawatt hour, while we see for nuclear $160 per megawatt hour. Those are, again, those are the the Lazar figures. You look at other cost assessments, the most optimistic is the International Energy Agency of the OECD that has calculated, and I admire the precision, $99 per megawatt hour for nuclear. And then you have Bloomberg, New Energy Finance, and and other sources that put uh, nuclear costs much higher than Lazar does. So what we can say is that in the middle, middle of the road number is really Lazar with a times four higher costs. So yes, definitely it's economics, but there's another factor and that's the time factor. The driving issue towards so-called clean energies is obviously what we call now the climate emergency is a time factor involved. So we need to do something that is not only cheap, but that is fast. And most of the construction projects take very long time, very long lead times. And as pure construction, the units that have been built over the past decade took a decade on average from construction start. 
So not even including everything that is a licensing, that licensing procedure, that is, that is site preparation, that is infrastructure building, all of that is not included. This is too long if we are talking urgency. We're looking at, at climate models uh, where we're talking 2030 as a deadline where mm. we have to significantly already reduce emissions. You kind of, I think we're going to come back to this though, and, and we'll use France as a sort of detailed case study. But even were, I, I mean, part of the underlying context of what you're saying is that even were, say, all the money, in, you know, economics don't apply, right? This becomes state-owned industry. It's it's a, a national imperative, a regional imperative to just get nuclear online. Those timeframes still don't accelerate very much as a result of uh, fundamentally as well, you know, a loss of industrial capacity in the regions and a lack of skills as well, right? There's a, it's, it's not just the money. It's also, I mean, playing into that is real fundamental structural issues in being able to stand up a nuclear power station in you know less than ten years. Absolutely, I mean we we've seen this um, with the uh, so-called European pressurized water reactor. I mean it has the term European in there, right? Uh, it's that's a model that has been developed as a response to the Chernobyl accident in Ukraine in 1986, and in March this year, for the first time, one of the EPRs, as they say was connected to the grid in Finland, but it's actually shut down again because uh, it turned out that in all four huge feed water pumps, they have damage, they have cracks. So the plant is not even in commercial operation. It already has problems. We see the same thing on Westinghouse's AP1000 reactors under construction in, in Georgia. The Votel plant that started building, again, according to the same definition I gave earlier, in 2013. And we're wondering whether it's going to stop next year or not. And obviously, in the meantime, the the price tag for these two units has risen to um, over $30 billion. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and I encourage people to go back and listen to episode 79, but the report you just put out in October, I mean, there's obviously some surprising and really interesting things I want to cover there, but let's zoom in on the European energy crisis, both what nuclear's contribution has been to that and what the re- nuclear response is that we're seeing, particularly out of France and Germany. I know you've just been in front of the German parliament last week. So can you give us the first off, I guess, nuclear's role in the energy crisis itself? It was obviously hoped for that when the energy crisis kicked off in late uh, 2021, and it kicked off because of obviously because of uh, the, the issues with gas supply, with the Russian government turning off and on the gas tubs, it was seen as a crisis driven by gas prices. But it was hoped for that the remaining nuclear power plants in Europe and especially France would actually help to stabilize the crisis. In fact, what happened is exactly the opposite. Around the same time when we spoke last time, uh, mid-December, it was discovered that there were huge technical problems and we can come back to that because it's a really fascinating story in the French uh, nuclear fleet. But what we've seen since the beginning of the year is that permanently 
less than half of the nuclear capacity in France has been operating. And that has been obviously having a huge impact on electricity prices in, in Europe. So besides the gas issue, it's actually the lack of nuclear electricity that had a huge impact as a, as a booster of energy prices in Europe. That, that has had an extraordinary outsized contribution and worst of timings. And as you alluded to last time, you know, the, the cascading issues when you, you find a light bulb's gone out to be very prosaic and you reach into the back of the machine and it turns out all the wires have been eaten and then no one makes those wires anymore. It's a, that's why these, these maintenances, even scheduled ones, just continue to go on for much longer than expected. There's also, you know, let's talk to Germany at the moment. You've also got the other end of the issue, which is Germany has a gas supply problem. The whole energy crisis hit Germany particularly hard because of the combination of high dependence in the, in the heat sector, uh, as well in the residential sector as in the industrial sector on gas, and the gas supply being highly dependent on, on Russia. That is very different in, in France, where the gas obviously also a very significant share of gas in the in the heating residential heating less heavy industry depending on gas and they have access to algerian gas so they have a better variety of sources for for gas supply it's a simplification of course but one can say that germany had a heat crisis and and france has an electricity crisis the fact that everything was kind of mixed up in in the public uh, especially through social media, but also traditional media picking up a debate about, you know, there were uh, still there are three remaining nuclear power reactors operating in Germany that, according to uh, legislation until Friday last week, were to shut down by the end of the year. So, so there was the debate, should those reactors continue to operate? If yes, for how long? Are we talking months or are we talking years? And in fact, the decision that was taken by the German parliament on Friday last week was to merely extend the operation until the fuel is burnt up, which means that the first reactor, one reactor will probably run out of steam by early March 2023. And the other two will likely reconfigure their core. So what you do is you shuffle around the fuel elements in order to optimize burn-up. And so you can stretch. It's it's what they call stretch operation. You can stretch, you get can get a few more kilowatt hours out of the existing core. And the amended nuclear law uh, in, in Germany uh, prohibits any new fuel loading. Uh, so by at the very latest, According to the new law, reactors have to be shut down, closed for good by the 15th of April, 2023. Mm. So it's merely pushing back uh, what was what was in the books uh, uh, so far. Just before we move on from that, do you, you know, is this going to be sort of a rolling pushback or do you think that will be a, a hard stop for the German nuclear industry? No, this is this is the end. This is very clear. There's no there's no debate anymore. Right. It's a very large majority that agrees to that. And it was more or less like a political maneuver 
by the the right wing Christian Democrats and the extreme right wingers to basically stir up public opinion against the 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 orientation that has been taken a long time ago. You know, people should not forget this 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 government didn't decide the nuclear phase out. It's it's uh, it was first decided uh, twenty years ago, and just had a reversal for a few months in the Merkel years. And it, it's Chancellor Merkel that after Fukushima initiated legislation to phase out nuclear power and at the same time to boost renewables and efficiency. Yeah, it's worth pausing there for a moment because it also very much feels like this has, particularly in the United States where I'm based, you have seen this attachment to nuclear of the right of the Republican Party, for example, but I think, you know, it seems analogous across Europe where there's this uh, holding on to a nuclear power represents energy independence and the only way to tackle energy transition. And that's, again, it's just worth saying, it's in the face of the reality that you're, you're highlighting here. Yeah, I mean, obviously, especially uh, since the Russian invasion uh, of Ukraine, we have seen demonstrated that a lot of the nuclear industry sectors are the service sectors are actually highly dependent on on Russia and it was it was actually the American nuclear industry representatives that were the first ones uh, internationally to lobby the Biden administration not to extend sanctions to the nuclear sector uh, against Russia and what is also interesting is that you know there is a, a number of countries uh, four countries in Eastern Central Europe, uh, Bulgaria, Hungary, Slovakia, uh, that are depending on Russian nuclear fuel assemblies. And there is an interesting anecdote that, you know, the Russian airspace is closed uh, for any flights of Russia into uh, Europe, into Western Europe. And the the first exemption beyond humanitarian flights was flying clear fuel to Slovakia. What what actually was seen as a part of independence turned to the worst part of dependence. And it's interesting that the the whole series, you know, you have seen one series of sanctions after the other. And somehow the nuclear industry always managed to slip through the addition of of sanctions. Although, for example, the the European Parliament voted explicitly to expand sanctions uh, to the the entire nuclear sector. One has to distinguish between trade relationships and real dependency. That's not the same thing, right? You can have a trade relationship, let's say, for example, on natural uranium, uh, where a lot of almost half of the natural uranium in 2020 came from either Kazakhstan, the largest natural uranium producer in the world, Uzbekistan or Russia. And, you know, if you consider that this is a under Russian control, more or less, that's a significant, very significant share. But you can also say, well, that's a trade relationship, but you can also go to Canada or Australia and buy uranium from them, yes, it would be more costly, that's for sure. 
but there, there are resources. That's not the case for nuclear fuel assemblies. And uranium enrichment services are somewhere in the middle. Russia supplies has about uh, a good third of the uranium enrichment capacity in the world. I mean, you can go there or you can go somewhere else, but a third is a lot in terms of existing capacity. And the combined effect on natural uranium and enriched uranium it will not dominate the, 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 the cost of nuclear power, but, but it makes it more expensive. And in a, an increasingly competitive uh, electricity-generating market, uh, it's, that cannot be of any wish of the industry, that's for sure. Yeah, and I want, to come, I want to come back to that because obviously it is interesting that Russia and China, from our notes here, you know, three out of four of all reactors are currently under construction either Chinese or Russian and Rosatom's dominance in this sort of, as you say, in sort of somewhat niche space, but a very critical space, you know, it has interesting geopolitical ramifications. Just before we get there, can we just go back to France and how long is it going to take to get out of the, the mess that they're, that they're in? That is very difficult to to predict. I mean, to be honest, the the uh, utility uh, EDF, the largest nuclear operator in the world, that operates uh, the entire fleet in France of fifty six reactors plus all of the UK reactors, is in a situation where they clearly lost control over their machines. We've seen in twenty twenty two the utility correcting its expected nuclear electricity generation for the year, four times downwards. No good news during the year. Now, what what happened? Uh, I think we've spoken on the accumulation of problems, and I think it's really crucial to understand that this is, uh, you know, now people, everybody talks about the corrosion issue, stress corrosion cracking, which was discovered <laughs> around the same time when we did the last episode, but nobody had imagined it would be as bad as that. Stress corrosion cracking is something very particular, and it's not age-related. So you have all of these age-related issues, and you have stress corrosion cracking, which is basically something that is more chemically induced than, uh, f- for example, thermal fatigue on materials or so. It was discovered in December 2021 on the newest uh, types of reactors. There are only four of them in in France. And it was discovered on a line which is part of the safety injection system. What is that? It's basically, if you get a leak in the primary cooling circuit, which is essential to to cooling the core. If you you lose the, the cooling water, you have to replace it. Um, and th- this this cooling circuit injects high pressure cooling water in case of a leak in the primary uh, circuit. So it's absolutely a fundamental safety feature of every nuclear power plant on Earth. And the thing is that they found very serious, long and deep cracks in the, in that one reactor to begin with. They immediately decided to take off the grid the three other reactors of the same design. Again, these are the newest ones. The last reactor was started up in France in 1999. I'm not saying they are new. (laughs) I'm saying those are the newest. 
ones, right? Uh, they're still over over twenty years old, but but those are the, the newest ones. And then you know began an unimaginable effort of investigation. You have to inspect kilometers and kilometers of pipes. And what happens then is that you have to cut out pieces where you find these damages. By the first half of 2022, they had 230 pieces cut out. Can you believe that? On various uh, reactors, not on one, on various reactors. But it also means that they have identified the problem on several pieces of the same nuclear power plant. So it became clear very early on that they need to inspect a large number of reactors. And then they found the same phenomenon on a 1300 megawatt reactor. Now, these four new reactors, they're called N4, that's a small number. They could take them off. But 1300 megawatt reactors, there's 20 of them. There was no way to, to, as a matter of precaution, as they did, for the the other ones to take all of those 20 reactors off grid at the same time. Impossible, right? So what they did is they went back to earlier inspection results and tried to find images. This is ultrasound inspection results uh, where, you know, that, that are close to what they have found in those newer reactors. And then they prioritized inspections. And then they realized that there's at least... 16 reactors. So the four ones I mentioned, plus 12 of 12, 1300 megawatt reactors that are sensible or very sensitive to stress corrosion cracking. It was also decided to inspect the entire fleet of 56 reactors until now, originally it was meant to be until the end of the year. That's impossible. It's it's just not feasible. So now we're talking about the end of 2025. Now, inspecting these things is, is very complicated. It's complex. So even inspection is dose intensive. We're talking primary circuit. It's radioactive. All workers that work under radiation in a radioactive environment have dose limits, of course. So you cannot leave them in there for hours and hours and hours of inspection. You have to rotate them. The same is true for if you cut out pieces or you weld them back in. There's not enough people in France. You know, the the French utility EDF actually imported welders from the U.S. They had not the industrial capacity to fabricate the replacement pieces. They are fabricated in Italy. You know, you don't find these things in the supermarket. They are fabricated to, to design, to, to their, their one-off fabrications. You know, even the, the head of the nuclear department in EDF, he, he called this, this whole inspection scheme already Titanic. Uh, so it's, it's a huge effort. So that has impacted, of course, it has impacted uh, nuclear production massively massively over the year. We're now looking at a generation possibly under 280 terawatt hours, that's billion kilowatt hours. To put that into perspective, 2005, I believe, was the, the, the highest production at 430. So 200, around 280, possibly less in 2022, 
compared to 430. Wow. It's a huge drop. And obviously, this has phenomenal impact on prices all over Europe, and especially, obviously, on France, which, which continuously had higher prices than Germany or other neighboring countries. Also, it led to a situation where France, not only in the winter, where it's been a net importer of, of electricity, especially from Germany for many years, but through all, all the summer, France was a net importer. I think there's, there's only two months where they had a slight accident of exports so far this year. So this is this is unprecedented. Uh, this is really um, a situation that is, it's, it's very hard to tell also, you know, when will this end? Because, you know, unless you have done all the inspections, you don't know what you'll find. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. But just to understand that, there are potentially reactors running that have very similar problems that have yet to be inspected or or at least less prioritized and others that definitely have problems. How much of a risk does this pose to a safety risk? Well, it's very clear uh, that it's it has been clarified by the head of the safety authorities just recently uh, in front of the parliamentary committee. This is a very serious safety concern, very serious. And it's it's kind of shocking, I must say, that you know there is a two reactors that are at the Catanom site, which is close. It's a country triangle between France, Germany, and Luxembourg. And these two reactors had identified cracks. And EDF has suggested to bring them back online in spite of those cracks, because they are fearing, you know, capacity shortages in, in, in the winter. And it was stopped by the safety authorities. I, I think that that is to me, if need had been, it's it's a perfect illustration that we are in an area now where arbitration has to be made all the time between safety and capacity, like supply security. That's a, a terrible situation for a nuclear safety authorities. You can imagine if if we're talking, you know, supply security of electricity for a, for a, a country like France, that's not a <laughs> that's not a minor issue at stake here. It's very major, and it's by the way also what has been uh, driving for the German government this debate about maintaining the reactors operating, not because of the the German demand, because of the French demand that wasn't covered by French capacity, because the Germans know that they have to export power all the winter to France. And, you know, the more the better. That was the reasoning. It was not about the the, the, the situation in Germany itself. So that is, in, in terms of 
it's very serious. It's very serious. And operator and safety authorities, of course, refute the idea that they, they would be arbitrating between safety and supply security. They say, we do always safety first. But then, sorry, how could it happen that EDF even suggested to put reactors back into operation that had identified issues? Yeah. I mean, it sounds a bit ripe for a panorama, doesn't it? Or a 60 minutes. I mean, because presumably as well, the inspections are essentially, as you said, looking at imaging from previous inspections. Those are neither up to date nor thorough in the context of searching for these the stress corrosion. I mean, it it does sound like, a, <laughs> you know, I don't want to laugh, but it does sound pretty terrifying that you've got these all the political pressure in the world trying to, you know, keep the capacity online. Whereas there's, you know, you'd argue that maybe 10 years ago, these things would have immediately been taken offline given the safety context. Well, exactly. If, if there was the, the option to say, well, if you have further reactors that potentially could be concerned by this uh, problem, if, if the, the, there was the option, likely they would get offline. I mean, what the the argumentation by the, the the operator and the safety authorities is to say, well, we EDF developed a new inspection technique that they have qualified through these numerous samples that they have analyzed. Because you do what you basically do is you inspect, you come up with an imagery, and then you look in the in the you cut out the sample and you look in the lab under the microscope, uh, whether the results of the inspection correspond to the actual physical damage. And they say that they have qualified that new technique, the ultrasound technique, to a point that they can, you know, they're more confident than they were about finding these problems and qualifying them as, you know, problematic or not. Yeah, well, I guess that's uh, uh, yeah, slightly terrifying. Um, so, so okay, so that gives us a good, good an understanding of what's going on in France, and that in reality, this is going to be a long-term problem, and probably ultimately will be solved by more renewable energy coming online than it will be fixing these power stations, which puts EDF in a terrible bind. When we discussed the the report that came out in October, and you know, people can access that at the the WorldNuclearReport.org. It's for free. It's a good read. The, one of the su- surprises that you noted, well, let's just talk about the international context of this and I guess Russia and China's dominance of this sector and what that means for, you know, I guess the growth or the continued shrinkage of, of nuclear generation around the world. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually really fascinating because if you, we had not done that assessment from that angle before. Uh, so we looked, what we did is we looked not only where the nuclear power plants are being built, but what designs. And if you do that, you realize that, of course, you have uh, China that uh, by as of mid-year, they had uh, uh, 21 reactors um, under construction. That is by far the, the largest number. And if you compare that with Russia, uh, that is only three. So... It looks easy that China is the, the builder and Russia plays a minor role building at home. But Russia is actually building abroad in as of mid-year in seven countries. And in the meantime, there is a, a new nuclear power plant construction started in Egypt. So it's another 
new country that adds to it. And so if you look at the at mid-year, the, the Russian project, the Russian design projects, Russian implemented projects, there are 20. And as they're also of the um, uh, 21 in, in China, four of them are Russian. Russia is actually the largest builder in the world. You know, if you look at, at the same picture from the other way around, you say, well, who else is actually building nuclear reactors from a vendor's point of view? In addition to Russia and China, there's only South Korea and France that have been exporting. And there's a few countries that build, it, build at home, Japan won. And yet, you know, the status of that construction is, is highly questionable. One in Argentina, same thing, you know, been under it's a small SMR type thing that is under construction for ages. And in the US, you obviously have uh, two reactors under construction. But that's it. That's the whole story. Mm. The, the, the question now will be, even if the sanctions are not directly on the nuclear sector so far, it might come. It might come yet. The pressure is increasing. You know, the, the supply chains have thousands of components that might be in one way or another concerned by the, the sanctions. So it's too early to, to say what the effect will be, but I mean, some effect will be on supply chains, whatever, whatever the decisions on the nuclear sector itself will be. Yeah, especially when, you know, chips and all the rest of it are, are sanctioned and, you know, Russia can't build uh, warplanes, let alone, you know, I imagine nuclear plants. But I mean, th that does beg a question, right? If you've got Russia is now sort of ex you know, the world's largest exporter of designs, what's to say those designs are any safer than what EDF came up with? Should the world have confidence in their plans or, are, you know, is it even more concerning that these might have less stringent safety features and indeed suffer from the same challenges that the most modern French plants suffer from? Well, I, you know, I mean, for decades, I always have refused to create some kind of a hit parade of the safest or unsafest reactors. I don't think that reflects reality. It's like prior to Fukushima, it was always, you know, this, the saying was, oh, well, look at these Russian reactors or these Eastern European reactors of Russian design, terrible, etc. Nobody expected the next disaster to happen in Japan. And I tend to say, well, disasters usually happen where you don't expect them. You know, you find features of the Russian designed reactors that are actually better than French designs. I give you an example in in. Russian design reactors like in Zaporizhia, which made headlines more than once throughout the year, they have their spent fuel pools inside the containment of the reactor building. So at first sight, this is definitely better. You know, it's much better protected than in, in the French reactors that have no, no protected spent fuel pools at all. It's basically a garage type roof. There's no protection whatsoever. <laughs> okay. Well, talking of, I, I, and I get your point, I just, you know, I think uh, it might give those buyers of Russian designs some pause how their equipment is faring in Ukraine. But, you know, <laughs> that's another point. I mean, one, you, you mentioned it there, Zaporizhia, you know, 
this is the first time in the history of the planet that we've had active shelling of a nuclear power plant. And although it's been shut down, obviously it still needs power to it. You know, you're the expert. I mean, how terrified should we all be of that? And what, you know, what is the status of that today? And, and what's been the sort of the international response? Well, I mean, I've been literally scared, you know, since the, the war began, because we, we no nuclear power plant in the world is designed to withstand uh, war type situations. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is people have been discussing whether the containment would could withstand, you know, shelling or so. That's not the question. You know, when you look at potential damage, you don't look at the most robust part of a facility, you look at the most sensitive parts of the facility. And you, you would think that by now people understood that electricity is absolutely essential to safety for a nuclear plant. And don't forget, it's not enough if you, if you shut them down. If you drop the control rods in the core of a nuclear power plant and you stop the nuclear reaction, the remaining capacity is approximately 7% of nominal capacity. 7%, that's a huge amount of heat that you have to evacuate. You have to evacuate. Otherwise, the core melts down after shutdown, right? And obviously, this, the, 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 that capacity drops quickly in the beginning and slower and slower after a few days. But that's not over. Like you can, any spent fuel or any, whether it's in the core or in the spent fuel pool can melt down if it's not cool. So, and in order to cool, you need electricity. So to me, those station blackouts we have seen, six reactors on diesel generators, on 17 diesel generators, uh, generators reportedly, I don't know what happens on the ground, reportedly, so there's always a question mark behind what we are hearing or seeing or, or reading anyways from, from Ukraine. But the diesel generators are notoriously unreliable and that the, the whole setup is not made for permanent operation, right? I mean, it's meant for short periods of time when you get a station blackout to kick in and then the power supply is taken over by the grid. Another point which is important to know is that if the entire site was down, you need the grid in order to restart a reactor. You cannot restart a nuclear power plant from a diesel generator. That doesn't work. So you asked me whether I'm concerned. For God's sake, I'm scared, you know, uh, to what can happen any time, any time of the day, any day. And again, you know, why, you know, looking for the most robust issues, uh, parts of the plant. You can also wonder, did the Russians mine? You, I, I know a few uh, spots where you could put a mine, just one mine, and you, that would probably be enough to uh, get to a uh, meltdown. So who knows? And it's incredibly dangerous which also raises the question of the role of the International Atomic Energy Agency, because suggesting that we need a safety zone around the nuclear power plant, fine. But what does that mean? Does that include all spaces, all 
villages, all cities where employees work, where subcontractors work. I mean, the human factor in all of this is just outrageous. I mean, imagine you, you, you're leaving your home to go to work at the nuclear power plant and you don't know whether your home will be still there when you go come back in the evening because there's heavy shelling all around. I mean, what kind of traumatizing situation is that? Is that a condition? I mean, do you need to be an expert or a psychologist or something to imagine that that is not a healthy situation to run a high-risk facility? So it's, it's all of these factors together and we try to write this up in a dedicated chapter in the status report, what the issues actually are in general. And we, you know, we, we, we refrained from giving the specific situation in Ukraine because we just don't have 100% safe information on what the situation is. It seems to me that we started the episode and it's, well, at least my feeling, my journey in this episode has been one of reliance on nuclear power has significantly contributed to the energy crisis. It's not a solution to the energy crisis, given all these factors around the, the time, the economics around it. But actually, you know, if you put piece together sanctions, a war, and the need to keep some of these uh, facilities online, we're probably at the most dangerous point of having a nuclear accident that we've ever been at, right? Would that be a fair statement? Well, definitely in a situation where the daily the, the constraints to nuclear safety, as it is outlined in any regulatory approach, is being violated uh, every day from the first letter to the last letter. I mean, nuclear safety is based on a very complex organization of legislative pieces, regulation, of careful implementation by skilled people motivated that are controlled by nuclear safety regulators that are backed up by technical support organizations. And all of this, you know, has some kind of an, an international context with uh, exchanges, consulting, etc., etc. I mean, it's like when something like the, the stress corrosion cracking issue happened in France, EDF stated they, they pulled in 15 international experts to try to solve the issue. So nuclear safety has a, a very complex, is a very complex system of various components. None of these components are reliably available right now in Ukraine. And it's not only Saporizhia, you know, it's also the other three sides. In total, there is uh, 15 reactors, right? And Saporizhia is six of those 15 reactors. Obviously, the largest nuclear site when it comes to capacity in Europe, but it's not the only one. Yeah. Well, okay, uh, I, I guess final question, as we look toward the new year, what, if anything, I mean, are we going to sort of end next year probably in a similar, all being well in a similar situation where it's unlikely that we're going to see much of the, the French fleet come back online. The German fleet's going to run for a few more months, as you say. Nuclear is not going to be the solution to the energy crisis, let alone energy transition. No, it? I mean, it, it is very clear that new nuclear is completely out of the game. You know, there's a lot of talk about new nuclear, including, you know, in, the, in this year. It's, it's, I find it staggering. 
that, you know, we're talking now about Westinghouse reactors in Poland. I mean, if you look at the internal assessments for France, you know, the earliest there could be a nuclear plant online in France, the most nuclearized country in, in the world at, in, in 2039, if it doesn't work well, 2043. And there's people talking about nuclear and running nuclear power plant in 2032 or 2033 in Poland. It's just, I always say, we do not predict the future and we cannot, but we have a very good idea of what happened in the past and what happens in the present. And if you take what the situation is, you cannot read from that assessment that it would be industrially possible to do that. So what are we talking about? Why is it, why is all this attention to options that from an industrial point of view simply don't exist? And if you extend the assessment of the ongoing constructions around the world by one parameter, which is the actual financing scheme, which I mean, the whole way to organize these projects that the Russians have developed is basically build on operate BOO, right? BOO means you have to bring your money. Since there's no market out there, you have to bring your money and you have to take the risk. And if you do that, you, you know, even Hinkley point C is built according to the same model. It's built on operate and the, and the French are selling or they hope to sell one day electricity to the UK customers. But the entire risk, the entire uh, risk on capital is on the balance sheet of EDF. And, you know, it's no coincidence that while there was some political abuse of this company, there's no doubt about that, you know, because the French government prior to the election in April decided to force EDF to sell 20 terawatt hours additional to the previous agreement to its its uh, competitors on the on the market that was done in order to cap the price increase to consumers to 4% could have been nobody knows exactly but maybe 40% or so if they hadn't done that with upcoming presidential elections why this was done guess what i mean it's obvious it was totally obvious that this was a political manipulation at the cost of EDF's finances. But the effect is absolutely dramatic. And if you if you combine that with the market situation of, you know, skyrocketing, I mean, we, we have seen prices of 500 euros per megawatt hour, etc. and beyond coming from something where we had seen 40 or 50. So we, we had seen increases by a factor of more than 10. That had an impact on EDF uh, finances that are estimated by some to have led to end of year result of uh, debt load increasing from 43 to 65 billion euros net debt. I mean, obviously we haven't seen this yet. And, uh, and so the, the government pulled the mm. plug and said it will re-nationalize the, the, the company. That of course led to taken off the, the heat in the short term. But all analysts agree that that does not solve any problem of this company. 
And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, uh, yeah, as you say, even without the adverse sort of political pressure, you know, the economics don't work. And from what you've been describing, you, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are saying it's madness to shut these reactors down, extend their life, all the rest of it. The fat tail risk, which is not so fat taily, it's relatively visible of accidents and the consequences of those are extraordinary, right? Paul, it's also an economic risk, it's a, and that shouldn't be underestimated. People always think that, you know, lifetime extension equals electricity generation. That is not the case. All of the units in France have an, an operating license, you know, a valid operating license. It's not the point. But, you know, having a license and operating is not the same thing. And the further, the older the reactors get, the more difficult it will become to guarantee for any kind of time that these reactors will actually produce. And that is a threat to the yes. economics as much as it is to safety. And, and that shouldn't be underestimated. That uncertainty, it's amazing, but the sun goes up every day. It's pretty amazing. But uh, so far, it goes up every day. And when we look at the predictability of solar and wind power, it's becoming staggering, right? I mean, we're now in the orders of magnitude of one to two percent over national level in a country like France. So it's very precise on the hour, by the hour, for the for 24 hours ahead, which is the spot market mechanism, right? I mean, you sell next 24 hours ahead uh, on, on, on the electricity market. The predictability of nuclear power becomes less and less reliable. And, and that's, that's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Well, like I said, I, you know, hopefully we can have you back on in a, in a year or so. And uh, uh, high power prices will be the worst thing that we've faced. But yeah, I encourage people to go and, and read your report. I'll put a link it, to it in the show notes. And um, once again, I've an absolutely fascinating discussion. And I've, thank you for your time. Thanks very much, Paul, for having me again. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.